I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Today, we're going to bring you two hot takes for the price of one. That's right. We have been busy this month hidden to theater to see some recent horror releases. We're going to be talking about the films Us and Pet Cemetery. And just to announce that this is a spoiler review for both of these films. So if you want to go check out these films before we dive in, then pause it right now and come back to us. Uh, Which one do you want to start out with, Chris? I'm going to let you choose. Let's start off with the one that came out first, Us, by Jordan Peele. Written, directed, and produced by Jordan Peele, right? That is correct. Yeah. And of course, this is the follow-up to Get Out, which everyone loved pretty much universally. Oh, yeah. I mean, even my, my husband, who does not like horror films, loved Get Out. Um, It really took the world by storm, and I think that everybody was just, like, chomping at the bits to get his second horror installment, right? Mm -hmm. And he started this whole production company, Monkey Paw, which is supposed to be, you know, making horror-related, horror-adjacent type films. Yeah. And, um... I mean, well, his popularity has exploded too, right? Because now he's like kind of the the producer and uh, narrator for the Twilight Zone thing. Uh And everyone's just kind of uh, really anticipated this follow up to get out because the message was on point, the comedy was on point, the horror was on point. It just really landed very well. And uh, I think it was something everyone really appreciated. You know, that's hard to do is get like a lot of um, diehard horror fans on board as well as like the casual theater goer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's not forget that Get Out was nominated for many Academy Awards. Yeah. And um, I think that really, again, I mean, every so often we'll get a a good horror film that sort of catches the Academy's eye. Things like Black Swan or Get Out, The Exorcist, Silence of the Lambs. And it really starts a conversation about you know how good horror actually is and can be and I think that the expectations for us going into it were incredibly high and it's almost not fair to compare the two but you can't I just don't see us living in a world where you can't compare the two because they're by the same person story by writing credits you know um, directing everything like his fingerprints are all over these but to me and I'm just going to start diving right in here get out felt like a lightning strike idea and us feels like that idea is trying to be forced like he had a lot to say and he just like i'm gonna do this and he kind of said i'm gonna write another horror movie and i'm gonna do this and it's it wasn't as organic or you know it didn't just work like get out did Mm -hmm. to me and i felt like us was a little bit forced like the idea was a little forced and uh that's my overall feeling about it and i i feel like people (sighs) i don't understand how anyone couldn't like quote unquote get the film but you know, I feel I feel like there's a lot there to mine, but uh, I, I don't feel like the message was as clear. Yeah, I mean, and I have to agree too. I know if you're if you're trying to have a message in in film, I mean, especially horror, if you're going to have some sort of like subtext to something, try to make it as effortless as possible. I mean, I don't think you need to beat the audience over the head with what your message is. He didn't do that in Get Out. I feel. Yeah, a lot of it was under some layers. Uh-huh. Uh, some of it was overt, but that was more the comedy. The more horrific things that had to say were kind of under the surface and a lot of the symbolism too. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't so much in us, in my opinion. No. Well, let's, uh, let's dive down into the movie and just talk about it and see, you know, how we feel. Okay. 
So the movie itself is about a family going on vacation to, I mean, a vacation home that I, I think used to be owned by her grandmother or something. Is well, what I got I'm getting it. that it's a timeshare of some kind yeah. because, they, of course, they mentioned that one of the jokes in the movie that I didn't like was about how there's a hidden key outside one of those fake rocks. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know about that. And they were like, oh, there's probably one of those keys out there. And I was like, what kind of white shit is that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I was just like, okay. So these people are going to to a vacation home of some sort, and they uh, encounter a family of doppelgangers that terrorize them throughout the night, and the story sort of explodes into this being some sort of global phenomenon, or at least something going on in the United States. Yeah, that was one of the slight twists in the film, probably for me the main one, because the other one was so obvious, because the film actually starts where the mother of this family is a little girl. And so they're on the beach or whatever, and she goes and she encounters a doppelganger in like a, a little like haunted house maze or whatever it was. It was like Merlin's Revenge or I don't know what it was yeah. called. And uh, she goes in and she in this hall of mirrors. She kind of sees this doppelganger, and uh, it kind of there's like this moment of horror there, and then it kind of stops. You don't really know what happened. And then the 20 years later type of situation. She's now a mother and she has a husband, and they're going to this vacation. Got the same place, mm-hmm. and then when they. Uh, you know, come across their family's doppelgangers as an audience, you're thinking, Oh, this has to do with where they are. You know, she's gotten a bad feeling because she's back. Is it because of, you know, some PTSD from her childhood or is it because it's this place? And that's when that twist happens where it's a global phenomenon and everyone's got a doppelganger, including their friends and people on the street, everything. It's just going crazy. So to that point, I really like the movie itself to me started out kind of slow like I I knew what the movie was about based on the trailer and I sort of wanted it to happen fairly quickly Um, the whole point of Get Out was that it built and built and built on tension until you get to that that, final scene where she's digging the keys out of her purse and whatnot. you know it's sort of like finding that climax and this movie has a lot of exposition at the front and flashbacks and you know you're, you're sort of like getting to know the family both the parents and the kids and their friends who are also visiting and there's just a lot going into it and I was ready for it to sort of start right but I will say that when the movie does start it really like hits the fan like right away and you know shit starts to go wrong yeah so they see these people standing outside in their driveway and before you know it they're in the house like tethering them to a table and sort of pairing them up with their you know other counterpart and you have no idea what's going to happen and that's to me when the movie really starts to get just great I like the idea of like the daughter running away there's always a possibility of escape you know and so just like he did in Get Out he's sort of creating his own like horror rules I was trying very hard to find tropes in this movie that I could liken to something else and I mean it took me a while to to think about another movie that did something like that do you Mm. know of i caught a few i can't remember thinking that while i was watching it i was like oh there's this one there's this one but i don't think it was so it wasn't a huge aggressor yeah i I mean and as the movie progresses you i mean like you're really starting to try to figure out exactly what's going on and by the time that we get to see what's going on in their friend's house you really are starting to put together what this movie is about, right? Everybody has a doppelganger, not yeah. just his family in question. And again, as the movie progressed, I liked it more and more, especially when it got to their friend's house. I thought those doppelgangers were incredible 
it was scary. It was scary to me. I was frightened yeah. by everything that was going on in that house before this family gets there. Yeah, and to me, like I was the whole time I was thinking this is there's a supernatural element to it, which they really allude to that this is a supernatural thing, uh, because especially when they're standing in the driveway and, and they kind of break and they start moving after you know this extended scene where they're just kind of staring at them through the windows, uh-huh. and this uh, family of doppelgangers just kind of breaks and one's like climbing trees like really supernaturally, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 everything like that, and and there's such a like a horror esque scene of like the father versus the doppelganger father where it's like oh this guy's got like supernatural strength. But you learn that, no, it's much more mundane than that. Everyone's got just like this clone, essentially, right? Right. But, you know, you almost want it to be supernatural for it to work in a way. Because it's like, how are they finding these people's addresses and houses and know who they are? Is like, is there some sort of, uh, I guess there is a supernatural element because there's one soul shared between two people, right? So there's a supernatural, like kind of fictional element to that. <clears throat> but that's never really fully explained. Are they drawn to each other? Do they know where each other are? Why can one sense the other and the other can't? You know, it's like, there's a lot of weird, like, things that if it was just straight supernatural you wouldn't be asking these questions but because he frames it in such a have and have nots kind of analogy where it's just like very plain there's all these people that have nothing and then there's all these people for everyone that have everything in comparison mm-hmm. you know that uh, you never know I don't know well I mean as he got through the movie and he started to you know sort of give us an explanation as to why these things are happening or why these people exist I mean, it it answered questions, and then oh really well, yeah, she she didn't. actually goes because her son goes missing, so she goes to find in the underworld or whatever, right? In these hallways or whatever, which to me was just so boring. Like <laughs> their lair is like just like endless hallways or whatever. Of and it, it makes sense because there's all these tunnels. In fact, the movie starts with a thing about there's like so many hundreds of thousands of miles of tunnels beneath the surface American soil or whatever. American soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like that was like I was like, what does that have to do with anything? Because this was not spoiled in the trailers. This mm-hmm. concept, this part of it, and I and I forgot about that until it came back to it. Anyway, so she goes in and tries to find her doppelganger who presumably stole her son or something. So she goes down there and there's this giant exposition scene where the bad guy doppelganger, presumably bad guy doppelganger, uh, the ringleader of all these other doppelgangers, presumably the progenitor of this master plan. I don't know. What the, <laughs> that's a good word. The craftsman of this master plan uh, is like writing on a chalkboard or like staring and has her back to her the entire time, exp- you know, doing this huge exposition, explaining everything that's going on. Meanwhile, this person, uh, you know, the good guy is standing there with a weapon behind her, just waiting and letting her explain everything for like 10 minutes straight or something. And finally, they have this fight scene after she's done. And I was like, OK, that's a trope. Like, just let's wait for the monologue, you know, and her back's to you even. And it's like, well, and they, they really needed that because, I mean, he, he created a movie that it, that's had the problem with it, so though. much mythology in it. That it needed that. It needed the exposition. And, I mean, I am a fan of exposition sometimes, right? But if it's, like, overly in my face, you know, I'm like, a brief sentence or something, I will get it, you know? But as the movie went on, I sort of feel like he's beating the audience over the head with not only his exposition, but a message. And I mean, a message, like I said before, should be effortless. It should just be a part of the movie. You get it and you watch and move on and you process after the movie is over. But with that being said, I think that this movie is expertly made. I think it looked amazing. It was wonderfully acted. And the acting was superb. Yeah. Lupita Nyong'o 
is great in both of these roles. If in fact I think I prefer her act you know, as that you know supposed evil doppelganger, right? When they first break into their house and she has that monologue of like there was once two girls or whatever, and she had that voice, and I was just like grasping onto that my armrest, and I was just like enthralled with that entire performance. Yeah, and I mean it was just amazing. And on top of that, Elizabeth Moss. I love Elizabeth Moss. And both of those roles are amazing as like this like ditzy, bitchy housewife, right? With maybe too much money to spare, doesn't even want the kids or husband she has. And then her doppelganger was mean, you know? And I was just like, you could just see on her face that she relished playing this part. Like she always does anyway. But I mean, like she was just perfect, perfect in this movie. The movie's metaphor is so nebulous and elastic, you could almost make up your own meaning, and it would have equal weight to the more universally accepted metaphor of the other, or the, you know, being rich versus poor, downtrodden versus well-to-do. But in the end, the idea is about the inevitable pushback that comes with with balance and nature, is what what they're saying. But I think people have been putting way too much meaning into this, because (laughs) they're so reverent and even worshipful of Jordan Peele that they're assuming this huge depth to this film that I just I just don't think is there and even to the point of pointing out uh, like he's dressing like Jack Torrance from The Shining during the press tour as some kind of message it's like please he he also wore like a Freddy Cougar scarf and stuff so he's wearing all these like horror-esque stuff on his press tour which is great you know but it has no meaning to it other than that you know they're trying to describe those like Kubrick levels of meaning and if, if even Kubrick had Kubrick levels of meaning in his work uh, there's just there's such a thing as overanalyzation, and everyone that's acting like their minds are blown after this is just like I don't get it. This is this is good. It's a good horror comedy movie, but it's not a huge statement. If if people lay too much expectation on Jordan Peele's head after these two films, I suspect like when he makes his like an okay one, he'll get like M Night Shyamalan out of existence, and I don't want that to happen. Like, calm down, people. He's making movies, not solving world peace. (laughs) No, he's not. But, I mean, I can see why he's doing things like that in Junkets, because I know, like, this movie is littered with Easter eggs to previous horror films. I mean, like, there are some shots that he has taken directly from other movies and placed it. And so, I mean, if, if you're making what is your love letter to horror, right? You're like, I love all these horror movies like The Shining or so on and so forth, and so I'm going to craft this shot to look just like it or you know I'm going to have like the juxtaposition of like people standing next to each other holding hands and things like that that's that's great you know but I'm just like tame your message a little bit maybe go back to the drawing board before you make the movie and check your script you know just like make sure it's perfect before you make the movie and let's check ourselves a little bit too because both of us had horrible theater experiences while yeah. we watched us. So yeah. that might be coloring a little bit of our appreciation for this. Like it wasn't nearly as transportive for me as it would have been if people next to me weren't just constantly talking. And that's true, you know. And I mean, like we had a whole rant in our Shooting, Shooting the, the Flames, Flames episode yeah. about theater etiquette. And it really did take me out of the movie. And I mean, for people who listen to this podcast, you know that it's incredibly easy for me to be transported into film. Like yeah. it, I, I will, it doesn't matter how good or bad the movie is 
when I'm watching a movie, I tend to completely immerse myself in it and get lost in yeah, it. You almost never rate anything less than a three. Yeah. I mean, I ever. tend to like every movie that I watch just because I, I take away a sort of feeling and it's easy for me to empathize with characters and things like that. And I wanted to in this movie really badly because I loved the characters. I think the father, played by Winston Duke, was great. You know, I mean, every, there were lots of really good things about this movie, but the theater experience that I had really tarnished it. And I'm looking forward to watching it again at yeah, home quietly. And I might come away with a different experience, you know, but I will say I enjoyed the movie as, as a horror film. I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was inventive, if not a little laborious, you know, but <laughs> I mean, that's so, a good word for it. Other than that, do you have anything else to say about the movie technically or? No, and I'll come back to it. But for now, I'm, I'm giving it a three out of five. And I'm going to give it a three and a half. I'm like leaning into four. Like I know, I know that it's good. I and I, I want to watch it again. And I, I enjoyed myself. I, I need to separate myself from what was going on around me and watch the movie again. But I, I really. I yeah, really I have to base this off my current viewing and nothing anyone else is saying. Like that Rotten Tomato score is like ninety something. It's like it's less than Get Out, but it's still pretty high. But the audience score is much lower than that. So that tells me something that gives me a little bit of validation. But, you know, I struggled with like bringing this up from a 2.5, which is halfway between, you know, one and five, right? So that's literally in the half. And I was thinking that 2.5 is packed with awesome production value and acting and amazing direction. But the, where the story is just thin on the ground. (laughs) I I think what really saved this movie for me was, was the acting and the premise. And I know, I think that I know that I missed some things in it, and I want to go back and I want to see the things again that I that I missed that I know that I did. Yeah. Either because, you know, of the theater experience or because maybe it just takes more than one viewing of this particular film. I didn't see Get Out until it was released yeah. on Blu-ray. I didn't see it in the theater. Between my patty melts and those talking people, like, I just don't know if I saw everything. So. <laughs> I have since seen Get Out like like seven times at this point. Yeah, I've seen it like three times. Yeah. And I, I love it. So I know. I but I loved it in the theater. Right. Oh, so yeah. come on. Okay. <laughs> Uh, our next film is, of course, Pet Cemetery, which just came out recently. And, of course, it is not getting the rave reviews that us got. And it has the cast that stars Jason Clark, Amy Simmons, and John Lithgow in a great performance, in my opinion. And I love that the music is actually done by Christopher Young. Which we've talked about in this podcast before. Yeah. But uh, this movie is actually directed by a duo. So it's Kevin Kolsch and... Oh, David uh, Woodmer. Yeah, Dennis Woodmer. So um, this uh, directing duo, and he was listing out the the cast, which I thought did a, another fantastic job. I thought the acting in this movie was good for the most part. With oh, I exception. thought the child... Like, I love John Lithgow, but I loved the child actress in it. Like, I thought she did great. She was like this little girl, innocent, blah, 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 playful. And then you, she sells that. She comes back, and she does really good, like, adult levels of malevolence. Uh, in her body language and the lines that she says and the way she performs it. And I thought that was great. And I really appreciated that they chose to make it uh, the girl instead of the younger, you know, two or three year old brother. I thought that was a, one of the top 10 creepy child performances in the first film from the 1989 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but in this one, like I really appreciated that change uh, and understood why they did it. So they could have kind of that more, you know, direct dialogue, you know, message of, you know, sometimes they are, better left dead you know and how there is even like straight up scripting in this film that talks about the nature of death 
you know, and, uh, and that is normal and natural and it's nothing to be afraid of. And so that was much more of a, a point that was brought home in this film than I think of earlier iteration. So I appreciated that. Um, I also know that I'm going in being very familiar with the book, being very familiar with the first movie. But I brought in, of course, my boyfriend who had absolutely zero knowledge of the book. Like, I don't know how he didn't know anything about this, but he how does that even happen? He literally thought the movie was just going to be about pets coming back from the grave and like terrorizing (laughs) people like gremlins or something. I don't know. But he, at the end of it, he said he, he doesn't really, he's much more critical of horror movies than me or you. Uh-huh. And he actually looked at me at the end and he goes, that was a ballsy ending. Like, I really liked that movie. And uh, I asked him later if he liked it more than us. And he said he definitely did. But also our movie going experience was much smoother. And it was, you could hear oh, a pin yeah. drop in that audience. So, uh, because we got like an early showing through our, uh, you know, partnership with uh, Alamo Drafthouse. So, yeah, I, so... <laughs> I mean, for those of you who don't know what Pet Cemetery is, like like Chris's boyfriend, uh, it's a, a about a family who moves to rural Maine from Boston, and they experience loss, like the loss of their cat, um, on a very busy road in which they live by. And there happens to be a pet cemetery that's situated on their property, and a neighbor who's lived in the town for a long period of time shows the father of this family a secret place beyond the pet cemetery where if you bury something it will come back to you for better or for worse yeah and of course it's not actually the pet cemetery right it's a cemetery where yeah. it's a ground beyond that right that's kind of haunted by the like the a de- tainted indian the, not, not an indian no. burial ground but no. like indian that's where they used to live and they, they lived it. and they left yeah because yeah. it's haunted by the patron demon of truckers so this movie is based on a novel by stephen king did you say what i'm sorry <laughs> The patron demon of truckers. <laughs> I need to stop thinking ten seconds, ten steps ahead. <laughs> also known as the Wendigo. <laughs> Fuck you! Oh my god! Now I can't remember what I was gonna the say. The redneck devil. <laughs> <laughs> Spit like a man. No, but that was actually something, an aspect of the film I really liked. Like the whole you know, mystique around the Wendigo and you kind of see him like almost like a slender man type of situation mm-hmm. out in the forest, really big, like, and like ambiguous looking. I really wanted them to kind of focus a little bit more on the Wendigo because that was some of the creepiest stuff to me and it was really effective. Well, and the novel does. So the novel talks a lot about the Wendigo and the mythology behind that and to why these things are coming back from the grave. And while I very much appreciate Mary Lambert's 1989 Pet Cemetery, I think that it's a, a fantastic movie. Things that I, I've watched it a lot throughout my life and I really respect it as, as horror. And it was fairly faithful to the book, you know, and this movie really is not like they really took some detours from the novel and that original movie. And I think it's okay. I applaud it. You know, I know that this movie got a lot of flack when the trailers were coming out because people said that it gave away too much. And I sort of like disagree. I think that they did that for a reason. I think that the horror community holds on to Pet Cemetery for some reason, you know, as like, pinnacle of horror pinnacle of a Stephen King adaptation and they made a very drastic change to it yeah so they box themselves in because they when you change something that's so beloved by the actual like hardcore community they're going to react negatively to that 
especially if it's seen for no reason. I I actually respect their reason and appreciate it. Yeah, I and think, I like that we have both versions to see. Right, well, I think we too. Have I mean, like, there's ways to make this even more adult and more horrific. The thing is, I mean, like, for a general American audience, they don't want to see a cute little boy saying these things, right? He was very tame in that original 1989 version. Mm-hmm. He's thinking, like, I played with so and so, and I played with Judd, and now I'm going to play with you. Ha ha ha! I wasn't this Chucky type laugh, and this little girl. Jatay Lawrence, right, really comes in and she's like the superb back from the grave villain. I mean, when she gets to Judd's house and starts to attack him, I think that uh, it's just like one, it was a very intense scene where she had that mask on. Not to mention, anytime someone's tendon gets cut like that, like I just react in such a way. Yeah. And I think that that they had to show these things in that trailer because I think that if a general horror audience who loves this movie so much went into it and they saw that change at that point and didn't know going into it, there would have been a fucking riot in the theater right then. There'd have been like people walking out and slamming their popcorn. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? This is not how it's supposed to go. You know, well, let's remember that there's also another on the other side for the general audience. They got kind of boxed in too, because what they did was they ended it with this downer ending, right? Downer endings are never awesome with general audiences. Like, think about what happened with The Mist, right? Yeah. They well. changed that ending, which Stephen, Stephen King himself appreciated and liked that, uh, that ending for The Mist. But uh, this is a similar kind of ending. And even Stephen King didn't really like it, right? Because it ends kind of ambiguously where it alludes that the, the youngest son is going to get killed because the, his entire family is now possessed by the Wendigo or whatever. And they're coming back and basically staring at him in the car because he had been locked in the car for his own I don't safety. even think they allude it because when the, when the screen goes black, you hear that whoop whoop. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, yep. they're getting him out of that car. Yeah. So, you know, even Stephen King, like, went on Twitter and was like, this is how you end the thing. You know, you have the kid, like, walking on the side of the road. Yeah. You know, and then some trucker stops or whatever. And I was like, where's your family? And then he starts to cry. And then that's when the credits roll. Yeah. You know, so to kind of allude that, you know, he could escape. But, you know, and I'm okay with that, too. But I don't have a problem with downer endings. This had to end the way it ended, in a way. Well, I think the original had a downer it's, ending, too. Oh, I of mean, course it did. He buried his wife, and then he's sitting there playing solitaire. The story is a downer back. Ending, yeah, yeah, it's it's a sad story. It's about grief and loss. And, I mean, like, there's no there's no happy ending to anything like that. There were some weak parts in the film. Like, I didn't like the whole ghost of, like, Marley or whatever the hell was trying to help them. <laughs> Pascal? Yeah. Yeah, so I have a friend named Erin. If you're listening, hello. Um, she saw this movie after I did and she sent me this message tirade of how much she hated it and how the movie un- itself yeah or? she was just like they underused Pascal they changed too much from the book and I mean like she just had nothing good to say about it whatsoever and I almost didn't want to be like oh I kind of liked it you know I mean so yeah so like that's that boxed in again yeah. like the, the hardcore people that read the book and everything they want to see exactly what they had in their heads and this is never going to happen I mean and I'm a huge Stephen King fan I have read this book more than once I have seen the original Pet Cemetery more than once you have to remember every adaptation is allowed to be different yeah and that's why it's called an adaptation you can go and do what you want to do as a filmmaker and I think that they hit a lot of really good notes in this and I, I don't feel like that they were as threatened or like I don't feel like they were as pressured to do something as, you know, similar to the book because there had already been another movie that was, you know, more in line a little bit in some places in certain aspects. So they had room to kind of do their own thing because we have now two movies for Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Remember that. If you like well, the other three, way if you it's want to done, Pet Cemetery 2, then, then you know, yeah, yeah, then go see. I'm not including sequels or spoofs. So. <laughs> 
I'm going to go out and just say it that I really I enjoyed this one much more than the original. I think it really hits home a lot of these like grief messages. And, and it had the balls to keep to that message. That's like, right. And I, I really enjoyed the performances both of Jatay Lawrence and Amy Simmons. Is that how you say her name? Who played the mother? I mean, like she was so good in this. I mean, just like you have to imagine what it's like to come home and someone's like hug your daughter who just died a couple days ago I mean like she acted great the acting was good in this movie with the exception for me of Jason Clark I don't think that I mean every time he was on screen I was just like I just, I just didn't like the dad him. yeah yeah I don't like his him as an actor I mean I don't know what I, else he's I been don't in. I know what I don't know what it is about him he was in Terminator to like for salvation or something. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know I that know. I've seen him in anything, but I was just like, I every time I was just like, can you find someone else quickly to be the lead <laughs> in this movie? So I mean, he did it, good. He did good. He filled the role. It wasn't distracting to me. But uh, if I that's did, the only note that I had, I thought it was paced well. Oh, yeah. I thought, I mean, and I I was terrified. I love John Lithgow. I keep saying that, but he was so good in this movie. He was good, and I mean, I always like I always like him in everything, especially like Raising Kane. If you want to go back to some like Brian De Palma horror. But I have to say, if we're going to compare the two a little bit, I think that Fred Gwynn's performance of Judd from the original 1989 version was better. I mean, different, separate but equal way. Yeah. I mean, he just, I mean, maybe it was that he had the whole main draw or whatever going on, but I mean, or maybe it's because I like Fred Gwynn. I liked both. You know, it might have been just a more modern approach to the character, which I'm fine with. Yeah. in In any case, like, to me, I enjoyed Pet Cemetery as a straight horror film more than I enjoyed Us, and I would give uh, I would give Pet Cemetery three point five as opposed to Us as three point On Letterboxd, I literally rated it four out of five. Oh, I really, yeah. really enjoyed Pet Cemetery. There was even no like maybe a three point five, maybe a four. It was a four star movie for me. I will watch it again. I will buy it as soon as I can, and I'll I'll watch it all the time. I it want like great. an extended cut where there's more of a, yes. You know, because there's kind of a slow burn at first, and then it just goes really rapid pace as soon as people start Oh, that final reel or the final act in that movie is like balls to the wall, everything. Yeah. And I know that they cut some stuff out. I know they did. Yeah, I want an extended cut of this film. I think that would actually help it a little bit and might push it to four for me. One thing that I do want to talk about before we finish is I know that everyone's favorite part of the 1989 version is Zelda, right? So everyone is terrified of Zelda Rubenstein? <laughs> when the bass drops. Well, she's <laughs> <laughs> uh, this house is clean. <laughs> a different Zelda, a more bedridden Zelda. She was much scarier in the first film to me, but I was also much younger right. to watch that. So I did the whole like dumbwaiter thing. Yeah, was scary to me in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that like the noises that, on the scraping in the walls. I love that. Everybody wanted like an in-your-face Zelda, like they gave us in 1989, and I'm like, you know what? Sometimes less is better. Yeah, and <laughs> so. you know, like her spinal meningitis, horrible, you know. Uh, they showed more of that closer up, and yeah. it just reminded me of Suspiria a little bit. Oh, oh definitely. Like yeah. the new Suspiria, the right? New Sus- yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like she had like crossed the sisterhood, you know, the dance academy. Mm-hmm. So much point. Olga right there. That's what yeah. happened. Zelda went to Freiburg and crossed them and came back. And, the, and so she had meningitis after that? They called it spinal meningitis, but it was really like... Some sort of witch's curse? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, those witches from Freiburg. And they woke up the Wendigo when she came back because she had the bad juju with her. Well, we're just writing another Pet Cemetery. Oh my God, that is the Pet Cemetery sequel. <laughs> the prequel. Prequel. <laughs> 
guys, tell us what you think of these two movies. I know that a lot of people are divided, both on us and Pet Cemetery. We want to know exactly what you think, and we want to know what you think of our take. You can do that on social media. Find us at the Film Flamers on Twitter or Facebook. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our phone line at 972-666-7733. That's right. Get your actual voice heard on the episodes. Also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. We have tons of bonus content for you. Just waiting for as little as $2 a month. Yep. And uh, if you were Patreon, then you would have heard this episode probably a week or two ago. So... That's right. Get on it. Get on it right now. And stay tuned for next week when we cover the film Sunshine. That's right. We're going straight into some sci-fi horror. Well, Chris, I think we have to go watch some more movies for hot takes. So uh, until next time, everybody. Sweet dreams. Where the sunshine. I want to end this. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch (laughs) Billy